Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. So I'm uh, I'm watching television this morning, and a commercial comes on for Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart is playing Toronto at the uh, I think they call it the is it Budweiser Gardens now. I think that's what they call it. And I always get a kick out of these announcers in these, you know, music commercials. Uh, uh, join us uh, for a special night. Well, they'll play all their favorite hits. How, how do we know that? How do we know that Rod Stewart isn't going to show up on that night and go, you know what, guys? I'm I'm tired of the same songs over. Today, I'm playing all of my B-sides. Sorry for anybody who feels that they were hoodwinked by the commercial that said I was playing all the hits. I never agreed to that. So I, I always get a kick out of those announcers. Join us. They're going to play all your favorite songs. How do you know that? Kitchener today with producer Polly and Brittany. Brittany <laughs> here until three o'clock today. Mm-hmm. I'm in a. Um, you know what though, Polly? Just quickly going back to what you were saying there. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point because I went to a, a country concert and I was hoping to hear one of my favorite songs by that artist, mm-hmm. and they didn't play it. And it's one of their bigger hits. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's happened to everybody. It just for whatever reason, the song that you're hoping to hear doesn't mm-hmm. make it on the list. And then, oh, maybe it'll make it on the encore. And you know, yeah. sometimes it does. And I'm sure that's written into the contract when they agree to sign or agree to play these different plays. I'm sure they just couldn't show up and go, yeah, I'm just going to do cover tunes tonight. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm sure it's in there. You you must play song A, B, and C at the very least. Like, yeah. But, well, because they're trying to promote, it. usually they're touring when they have, like, an album come out, right? Mm-hmm. So trying to promote the album. But, yeah, it was one of my favorite tunes to get yeah, played. I, I'm it was just, heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm in a bit of a weird mood today. I, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm all prepared for the show, but I just, I'm worried that I'm not, and that I'm just, I'm kind of on edge. I'm almost in one of those moods where I'm like, you know, if somebody calls and rubs me the wrong way, I might tell them what's what. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. I don't know. There's I don't a lot know. Of, this could be a little interesting now, Polly. There are some heavy topics on the show today. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I'm a little apprehensive. Mm-hmm. Because the one day last week that we were on, uh, you know, we did a couple of, of, of light topics. And mm-hmm. and so it, it's none of that today. A lot of, a lot of big topics. Although at 2.30, of course, we have our Tuesday Tech Spotlight. And Prem Gruel-Rajan will be here. He is the CEO of Rideco, and he's putting a little twist on the the rideshare services that we've all come to, you know, know and some of us love over the last few mm-hmm. years. Has a bit of a different twist to that. So that's our Tuesday Tech Spotlight coming up at 2.30. At 2 p.m., Kitchener uh, Ward 9 Councillor Debbie Chapman will be joining us on the phone. Uh, Kitchener Councillors last night. And again, another one of these marathon 
council meetings, delayed a decision on a, another condo tower, which is, if approved, will set to become the tallest tower in the region today. I, I think we're looking at 42 stories, I think. Oh, my goodness. Oh, they're getting taller and taller. So that's <laughs> <laughs> that's happening at uh, at 2 p.m. at 1.30. Rajiv Hate, he is a personal injury lawyer at Kotak Personal Injury Law. And uh, with the new travel rules and people wanting to travel, especially now if the pandemic is appears to be winding down, what should you know in terms of, you know, insurance? Mm-hmm. Should you get travel insurance? I honestly never have. But maybe, maybe I should, especially in a post-pandemic world. So that's at one thirty. At uh, 1 o'clock, Robert Dennett. He's a professor at the Department of Communications Arts at the University of Waterloo. A, a recent piece in the conversation, Seven Ways to Spot Polarizing Language and How to Choose responsibility, what to amplify online or in person. You know, this goes back to this political divide, which is very prevalent in the last, well, I'd say the last five years, but even particularly the last two years, it seems to be ramping up. So, yeah, seven ways to spot polarizing language. And then coming up in half an hour, of course, it is International Women's Day. Woo-hoo! And uh, Andrea Gunraj will be here. She is vice president of public engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation and a new survey shows gaps between the desire to end violence and the ability to support victims. So mm-hmm. we'll be talking about that at 1230. Uh, of course, every day is something. So let's start with our special days. All now, right. Of course, we all know that it's International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. First so, and foremost. But that's not all. Okay. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? I once... You know, I have these these sound effects mm-hmm. in my studio, these hot keys, as we call them. And Mike Farwell, every now and again, will go, you know, he'll be reading a story and he'll say, oh, but wait, there's more. I wanted to create a hot key of a, you know, an infomercial guy saying, but wait, there's more. It's at, it's difficult to find. Well, like, just record your voice. You do that, it so well. I'm at the point now of doing that because... I've searched various infomercials for an announcer saying, but wait, there's more. And it's like, could you think every infomercial mm-hmm. says that? No, it doesn't. It's, Call it's, now and we'll double the offer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or if you order in the next 15 minutes, we'll double the offer. Like, <laughs> yeah. But wait, there's more. There was even a book that was written about 10 years ago about TV infomercials. And the name of it was, but wait, there's more. Oh, wow. So it's, it's anyway. The more you know. <laughs> I don't know how I got onto that topic. So, yes, yeah, of course, it's international Women's Day. It's also National Organize Your Home Office Uh, Day. Home offices are more uh, commonplace uh, year by year, and today, one in four Canadian households have one. You don't have to be self-employed or work from home to have a home office. It can be used simply for sorting through bills, finances, documents, and all those other fun things that we love saving for a rainy day and having a designated workspace workplace, workspace rather, and everything to run faster and smoother. So, I mean, we have a room in our house dedicated as the office, Mm -hmm. and it's the one room in our house that since we moved in still hasn't, like we kind of use it as an extra storage room. There's always a couple of, you know, totes or cardboard boxes of things kind of in the corner or whatever. My dream is to get that all cleaned up and (laughs) because for me... I need a clean workspace. 
mm-hmm. it, whether I'm at a desk or, or, you know, behind the audio board there or whatever, if things are cluttered around me, my mind is cluttered. I just, I have to have a clean workspace. Okay. It just, I don't know. It's a little thing that I have. Yeah. So. My, my workspace when I was working from home was my kitchen table. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And my wife's been working from our kitchen table for the last two years since the pandemic wow. began. And we've been meaning to move her up to the office. Well, yeah. today's your day, yeah, Polly. You Marnie, it's National Organize Our Home Office Day, so I know what we're doing tonight. What an exciting Tuesday. It's Ash- It's also National Proofreading Day. Oh, you- well, come on. That should be every day. Proofread everything <laughs> yeah, exactly. before you send it out. Do you cringe when you see a document filled with misspelled words, or are you the friend that everyone asks to read over their projects before they send them out? then this is the holiday for you. National Proofreading Day is a day for everyone to slow down and read what they just typed for themselves. It's a day to have a goal of 100% accuracy for everything <laughs> generated. Oh Think you can do it? So, Interesting. Yeah. Again, so, that should be every day. Mm-hmm. I see some interesting things go out onto the internet, go out into applications, Whichever. (laughs) And one more special day, and then we're going to get to your question of the day, which Mm -hmm. you have promised is going to be a stumper. Mm -hmm. You do have a backup question, but you say, well, I'm not even going to need the backup question because this one is so good. Mm -hmm. So before we get to that, it is also Unique Names Day. Every year, lists come out. Uh, to the uh, herald of most popular baby names, celebrities are famous for giving their children unique names like Moon, Apple, and North are just a few that are easily recalled. Names are important as they help create our identity to the world and ourselves. Unique Names Day takes a moment in the year to celebrate those who have those interesting names. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So ah. <laughs> I have one of the I have one of the most boring names ever. Yeah. Paul. Paul. Yay. It's been around for <laughs> centuries. <laughs> if your name is in the Bible, it's a boring name. Matthew, Mark, <laughs> Luke, John, Paul. Oh you know, they've been around. That's an interesting. Well, that's good to know. I don't think there's any Britneys in the Bible. I don't think there's any Britneys. I don't think there's any Britneys in the So anyway, yeah, it, it's a Unique Names Day. Interesting. So, I always wonder how people, you know, land on names like that, like like Apple and um, and and Moon and North. Like how, how I just I like the the backstory of it. How they they come to that? I guess they're just trying to be unique. I know, but know? it's just so interesting. Like, how do you get to that? If you you could pick any unique name, how do it, you get to pick the name Moon? It bothers me when people take an existing name and then respell it. So like a Brittany with two E's or something oh, like that. Yeah, like okay. It, I don't know. Uh, Paul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. P-A-L-L. Paul. Yeah, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any alternate alternate names. Alternate yeah, you can, to do Paul. My you, name. Could, you could do it any way you want. All right, before we get to your question, we have Brian on the line. Brian, go ahead. See, when I was little and I went to kindergarten, I did not want to be Brian. I wanted to be Paul. Really? Yep. I what? told my kindergarten teacher on the first day when she asked what my name was, I said Paul. That wasn't my name. <laughs> ah, and, and how long did that did that charade go on for? About an, about ten minutes until she got the <laughs> attendance list. Started reading names off. She's like, "Your name's not Paul. It's Brian." Uh, then I was slightly embarrassed. Anyway, the most original name I ever heard 
was quite recently a, um, a, a baby girl born. The name was spelt. So you write it down and tell me how you'd say it. L-A hyphen A. L-A hyphen A? La? Yeah, hold on. It's Ladasha. What? Lada- oh, the dash. Oh, my goodness. The little hyphen is pronounced Ladash. dash. Ladash. Really? And they spelled it on her birth certificate, L-A hyphen A. I didn't think they would allow that. I was like, that's cool. But every kid, every class that kid ever goes to, yeah. the teacher's yeah. going to start the class by, um, la-a? Yeah. <laughs> She's going to have to put up her hand and say, Ladasha. And good luck finding that name on a keychain, because that ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <Love> Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to think, you know, when you give these... These children names, you think you're being all cool and unique, but you're also giving the child a lifetime of headache. Trauma. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Brittany's question of the day. We mm-hmm. put this off long enough. So 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570. Brittany, what is the question of the day? All right. This was an item. It was originally developed as a torture device in the early 1800s, but today it's actually used by many people, and they enjoy it. All right. So So an item that was originally developed in the 1800s as a torture device, mm -hmm. and what? Um, Okay. What was originally developed as a torture device in the 1800s, but today many people use them? All right, 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570, if you think you know the answer. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Our question of the day, Brittany again. What was originally developed as a torture device in the 1800s, but today many people use them? All right. I'm afraid to go to the phones, (laughs) but we're going to the phones. Kyle, go ahead. I'm going to say weight. Like any form of exercise to me would be torture. (laughs) (laughs) Weights. Lifting weights? Not lifting weights, no. No? Okay, thank you very much. All right, <laughs> thanks, Kyle. 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570. Vivian, do you know the answer? I'm going to guess a hairbrush. No. Hmm. Ah, okay. All right, thanks. I, I can see how that would be a torture device. You know, you kind of... Put it on your skin. It might tickle a little bit or something. <laughs> Stop it, you know. <laughs> now, okay, because when I give the answer now, because of Kyle's answer, it might seem like, well, he sort of got it, but hmm. he he was a little too broad, so well, I c- can't say yes to what the line he was going down. All right, so you're giving clues already. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see if Tina knows the answer. Tina, what do you got? Acupuncture. No, although that would be torture. <laughs> I, see, I, I've never done acupuncture. Is Me neither, that, is that but an it looks... enjoyable experience? I don't know. Isn't that where they put the pins in your back mm-hmm. and it's supposed to relieve stress and pain and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570, hands free. Brittany, one more time. 
what was originally developed as a torture device in the 1800s, but today many people use them. Claudio, do you know the answer? I think I do. I'm, I'm with Kyle. Torture, torture. It's a treadmill. Yes. What? Yeah, the treadmill. The answer is the treadmill. Mm-hmm. Hold on. How? Like, Wait, how did what? you know that? Hey, did you look it up? No, I I, uh, I just got rid of my treadmill because I looked Because it was torturing you? That's torturous. <laughs> I, hold this. This is big. 1800s? Yeah, so the... I, they didn't have electricity in the 1800s, so obviously it, was, it had to have been modified somehow. <laughs> okay, Polly, one step at a time here. Oh, literally, in, it's a treadmill. <laughs> You're telling me. In 1817, it at the time was called tread wheel. Mm-hmm. It was developed by an engineer, and its purpose was to punish prisoners. And now people use them and actually enjoy it. It was oh, the punish. I still don't. Un, I guess so. They would have prisoners walk on the treadmill right. for five to six hours a day. Right. I wonder what it looked like. Is there a picture of this thing? Um. Yes, actually. Yeah. Okay. It's like a long. Okay, I get it. It's kind of like a combine sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. A long wheel, and multiple people would be walking on it at a time. Mm-hmm. I can see how that would work. Yeah, but. They are treacherous, you know. I don't know why people or how people Just enjoy. go for a walk outside like I, I do. And the scenery is better. <laughs> so, yeah, the answer is treadmill. treadmill I, I, yeah. I had no idea that treadmill was invented back in the, in the 1800s. The more we, you know, little history lesson we, for you there, Paul. We still got a couple of people on the line. I mean, we have the, I wonder what the guesses would have been. Yeah. Let's, let's find out. Lisa, what, 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 what would have been your guess? I was going to say tattoos. Tattoos. Oh, yeah. yeah that's that, a good guess. Yeah, that is a good one. Thanks, Lisa. Oh, no problem. I, I don't... Uh, do you have a tattoo, Brittany? I have a lot of tattoos, Polly. Do you really? <laughs> oh, you do? <laughs> I don't have any. I don't... Shows you how much you pay attention to me. I even have tattoos on my ribs. Really? So, yeah. No. No, I don't have a tattoo. <laughs> if I were to get one, maybe I'd get like the Blue Jay logo on my arm or mm-hmm. something like that. Aw. So. Such a first-time tattoo decision. No, I know. <laughs> what was your first one, and what was oh, the meaning gosh. of it? Oh, gosh. It had no meaning. It was, I'm 18, and I can get a tattoo, so this is what I'm going to do. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it like a butterfly or no, something? No, no, it's way worse than that, and we're not going to talk about it. Okay, so. <laughs> all right, okay, cool. I mean, because, you know, I, always, I, I always do find it interesting when people, you know, I come across people with tattoos. Every tattoo has a story, right? What's that one about? What's that one about? Yeah, right? I guess. there's a reason that you would want to put that on and also go through the pain that many tattoos require. It, it, actually, is it true? It's actually enjoyable, to be honest really? with you. It, it, your first one always hurts. Depending on the area you get it, it yeah, hurts. Yeah. But I don't know. When, I always say to people, once you get one, you're going to get addicted and want to get more. And it's happened to me. So. I've heard, <laughs> I, I guess to get a tattoo removed... Oh, worse. yeah. It, I've heard painful. it's a lot more painful to get it removed than when yeah. you're actually getting it. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I've heard. Again, I have no experience. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of these days I'll get a tattoo. Paul, Polly will be joining the, I thought I was going to say the bad side. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? Not yeah. a bad side. <laughs> Maybe one of these days. The I club. Will. We're an exclusive club, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> we have news coming up next at 1230. And then after that, it is International 
Women's Day, and a new survey shows a gap between a desire to end violence and the ability to support victims. So we'll be speaking with Andrea Gunrad. She's vice president of public engagement at the Canadian Women's, sorry, Women's Foundation. And we'll be doing that next on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Back to Kitchener today on City News 570. Producer Polly here with you until 3 o'clock this afternoon. Well, ahead of International Women's Day, of course, today is International Women's Day. And ahead of International Women's Day, this is a poll that came out yesterday, a national poll by the Canadian Women's Foundation, finds that 23% of Canadians feel Intimate partner violence is, and I quote, none of my business if it doesn't directly involve me, end quote. Furthermore, 46% say that gender-based violence feels too big for me to play a role in it. Now, so, you know, Brittany came to me yesterday and said, you know, it's International Women's Day. You know, we should, you know, do something on the show with International Women's Day. And, you know, she proposed this. And I said, all right, yeah, that's, that sounds like an interesting idea. But I don't know anything about it. And I'm like, well, Brittany, do you want to do this interview? Because you're a woman. But then I got to thinking about it. You know what? Maybe I am the, the perfect person to do this because this is an area that I honestly have not given an awful lot of I've thought about it. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've never hit anybody or it's, but, but clearly I'm, you know, there are, unfortunately not everybody's in that, in that situation. So uh, some of the stats in this survey I found rather interesting. So yeah, it, it, 23% of Canadians say that intimate partner violence is none of my business if it doesn't directly involve me. And we're going to find out more about this now with our guest, Andrea Gunrash. She is vice president of public engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. And uh, Andrea, let's start off with, um, uh, tell me about the Canadian Women's Foundation. The Canadian Women's Foundation is Canada's public foundation for women and girls and gender diverse people. We aim to move women out of poverty and out of violence and into confidence and leadership move the needle on gender justice in Canada. Now, this survey that was conducted, uh, tell me about the survey. When was it conducted? How many people were surveyed, etc.? Yeah, this uh, was actually conducted last month. So um, we just got it done in February. And we had a representative sample of 1,500 people in Canada. And we really tried to make sure that we got a representative group of people to see what they actually believed about gender-based violence and maybe where the differences between our beliefs on violence and what we actually feel we can do personally to end it, where those come together and where those actually diverge. So your uh, president and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation, uh, Paulette Senior, was recently quoted saying, quote, the disconnect between knowing something needs to be done but not knowing what to do can have a serious impact. Is that the gap that you're trying to narrow in this study? That's right. I think that uh, what this study has shown is that lots of people, most people, believe that everybody has a responsibility to end gender-based violence. And that's things like emotional abuse, 
sexual abuse and intimate partner abuse. This is the kind of stuff that women, girls, and trans, two-spirit, and non-binary people are at higher risk of experiencing. And we've seen in the pandemic, of course, that these rates of this violence has really skyrocketed. So most people believe we need to end it. But I think that there's such a disjuncture between what we know we need to do and how prepared we feel to do this. So at the same time that most of us think we need to end it, also 54% are afraid to help somebody in public in case they put somebody at risk. And that makes a lot of sense. 51% are afraid to help somebody in private because they think they might make the situation worse. And then what's also more concerning to me than that is that 46% feel that the issue of gender-based violence is too big to play a role in ending it. And then 24%, so that's almost one quarter, feel that gender-based violence is a personal issue and not a social problem. And 23% feel that intimate partner violence in particular is none of their business if it doesn't directly involve them. So you can see that there's this idea that we do have the values of anti-violence, but we also feel like we can't play a role in it. And we feel that it's none of our business in some ways as well, too. We have to kind of make those numbers come together a little bit more so we can see that we believe in anti-violence and we can act on that belief as well. Yeah, and that was the headline, uh, you know, really with this, with the survey, is that 23% of people feel that it's none of their business. Now, why do you think it, uh, why do you think people feel this way? They just, you know, they don't want to get involved in somebody else's, you know, personal affairs, that sort of thing? That could be part of it. Another part of it as well, too, is that there's still this idea that it's between the two of them. You know, intimate partner violence tends to happen behind closed doors, between people who know each other in private spaces. And we still have this idea that if somebody is going through violence in a situation, if they're in a relationship, maybe we feel that they chose it. Maybe we feel that they're okay with it. Maybe we also blame that person for being in that relationship. So there's some, still some attitudes around blaming the victim, around seeing that as a private matter between two people that nobody has the right to get involved in because we don't know the details. So I think we're up against some stereotypes that we still have to work on. And we also just need competencies to be able to learn how to speak about difficult things with somebody else, how to tell somebody, I know you're going through a tough time. I'm here for you. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to help you and I won't judge you. I think that that actually takes practice and it takes a a bit of finesse. And that's why we have our signal responder campaign to help people just get the tools and competencies to be able to respond to violence in that responsible way. And maybe some people might have this this notion too, well, you know, if... if it was really that bad, she would leave, but it's sometimes not that easy. I think you're so right. I think a lot of people might think, well, if it's terrible, you'll run off to a shelter or you'll find somebody else to go to or you'll find another place to live. But the truth is there's a lot of fear about leaving a dangerous situation. And sometimes the violence increases when you leave a violent home. So it's not a simple matter of leaving a dangerous situation. Sometimes you can't leave. And that's why you need people around you who say, you know what, I'm going to be here for you. And regardless of whether or not you're ready to leave, regardless of whether or not you do choose to leave, I'm going to support you regardless because I care about you and I love you and I don't want to judge you. And that's a hard response to come by. Sometimes we don't hear that when we're going through a dangerous situation, but it can really make a huge difference for somebody who's going through a violent home or just feeling like they have nowhere to turn. 
So diving into a couple of the uh, of the stats here, you mentioned a couple of them off the top. Uh, you know, 35% of gender-based violence survivors report not disclosing abuse because they feel that no one, uh, that there's no one they could tell. And 27% feel that if they were to come forward, that they wouldn't even be believed. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that fear is so palpable. This idea that I don't have anybody to tell, nobody that I can trust about this deep thing that's happening to me that is so, uh, feels so shameful and I feel judged about. And this idea as well, too, that I'm not going to be believed. You know, there's a movement that we see people talking about now that I think is really encouraging where they're saying, believe people when they tell you that they're going through something. Believe women when they tell you tell you that they're going through something. I think that's a great strain, and I'm happy to see that kind of messaging happen. But I think this shows that for people who are experiencing the violence, survivors of violence, that that perception is still there, that that experience is still there. Perhaps they did it before and they got burned. So we have a long way to go to actually proactively open that space for people to be able to disclose violence and feel that they will be believed, they will be treated kindly, but they won't be judged and they won't be blamed or shamed. And 32% did not disclose because they felt that they would be judged, blamed, or shamed. That's right. And you think about that number. That's 33%. That's almost one one third. And I think that's so scary because I feel that this idea of being judged, blamed, or shamed, this is something that we can change. We don't have to respond to people who are going through violence in a judgmental or blaming or shaming way. But because that perception is out there that people will be judged and that we also act on that sometimes and we make people feel terrible I think that this is a barrier that is absolutely collapsible, but it's a cultural value. It's something that we have to make sure that we have in place to be able to challenge and that we're able to have alternative ways of addressing people. Again, that's why we really think that training is really necessary. People need the chance to be able to practice the stuff. Think about, oh, my goodness, I don't think I'm judging, but maybe I am. Maybe I might, the way I set my face, the way I answer, we need to actually workshop these things with one another and be more open about the way that we respond to violence. And we're asking people to sign up at signalresponder.ca to come on a learning journey, honestly, with us about this and, and just learn how to do it better. Because that number, 32%, that should go down to zero. And we can do it, but we have to work towards it. And it is a cultural shift. It's a mentality shift as well. And uh, 12% were afraid to report the abuse, fearing that their abusers will find out. Now, this number more than doubles for racialized groups. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why that could be. For racialized people, you know, we are in situations where our community might be small and everybody might know one another. So this idea of our abuser finding out about us saying something about it and feeling like we need to... Uh, protect ourselves. That's a very palpable fear, and I think it's a very valid fear. As well, too, those of us who are racialized, if our abuser, if, if they find out, we worry about the consequences of other people finding out. We worry about the consequences of that person getting criminalized. And we know that racialized people tend to be over-criminalized by the system, and we may not want that to happen. We just want the abuse to stop. So those of us who are racialized, we have additional barriers that we have to think about. It's not just a matter of us experiencing violence and feeling like we can go and get help. That help is not necessarily always available, and certainly we're worried about the consequences in a society where it's not always set up for our well-being and our safety. 
The survey also talked about, uh, you know, the support that might be out there, you know, from friends or family or whatever. And 86% of people in Canada believe that they are able to support someone facing physical abuse, but only 66% of those who disclosed experiences felt at the, uh, that they felt supported when they came forward. Yeah, I, I really find these findings most interesting. I find that this idea that those of us who are supporting somebody experiencing violence, whether it be physical, emotional, or sexual, many of us feel like we can support them and we feel like we'll do a good job. But those who are experiencing that violence don't necessarily feel as supported as we think we're supporting them. There's a support gap is the way that we've looked at it. And I think it's important for us to be able to see that support gap and recognize that even if we think we're really great about it and we think that we're not judgmental and blaming and shaming, perhaps there's things we still need to learn so that we close that support gap. So as many people say, I'm supporting somebody well, and matches those folks who are experiencing this violence, but they say, yes, I'm being supported as well as that person thinks they're supporting me. Again, training, competency, being open in the way that we talk about, the way that we respond to violence, that's necessary. And that hasn't been done at large. It's something that maybe we're talking more about nowadays, but there's still a ways to go. And that tools, those competencies, those those feelings of confidence in doing that and supporting somebody who's experiencing violence, we still have to learn. And what can be done to close these gaps? I I mentioned I think there's such uh, things that we can learn nowadays. I think there's so many stories out there about what a person has gone through in a violent situation, what helped them. I think we have to be listening to those opportunities to learn about that kind of stuff, hearing those first-person accounts from survivors themselves. I think that we can pay close attention to that. And I think as well, too, that, you know, everybody in Canada, signing up for signalresponder.ca, go there Put your information in and get on the learning journey. You'll get tools, you'll get guides that are just available on your phone, you'll get online training. And it's just this idea that the more that we learn about this, the more we think about the ways that we respond and get the right ways to respond to somebody else. Simple things that we can do that that show that we're not going to judge somebody. I think that's the next step for us. It's really building up those tools and those competencies And being able to say that more people than ever not only believe that violence needs to be stopped, but it also has the competencies and the confidence to stop that violence. And you've touched on it a couple of times here, but tell us about the Canadian Women's Foundation Signal for Help tool. Well, the Signal for Help is a simple one-handed gesture that you can make to show that you need somebody to check in with you safely. It's just a palm up thumb tucked into the palm and fingers over the thumb. And it's just a one simple gesture move that says, I need you to check in with me safely. Something that we launched in the beginning of the pandemic because we know gender-based violence went up, but also people's use of video calls went up at the same time. So it seemed like the right time to release something like this. And it's one tool that people can use. And we found that it went just viral around the world. And we've heard many situations where people used the signal and got the help that they needed. We're really happy about that. But we know that as many people as will use the tool and see the tool, there might be people who don't know about it and don't respond to it very well or may not even know what they're looking at. 
Well, that's why we launched our signal responder campaign, so that we give people the information they need to respond well to this violence and know what to do to support a survivor who says, hey, I need you to check in with me. Whether or not they use a signal for help or not, you might just know somebody needs that help. That's why we're asking people to go to signalresponder.ca because it's a learning journey and it's digital tools that's going to be sent to your email, sent to your phone. And it's the kinds of things that we need to learn how to do better so that we can actually respond to violence in a way that actually helps somebody and doesn't make them feel judged, blamed or shamed. Andrea, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Andrea Gunrash is vice president of public engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. So I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on uh, what you've just heard. 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570 hands free. So if you have a thought on that, or maybe we, we lighten things up a little bit. And if you want to tell me about an inspiring uh, woman in your life, uh, again, 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570 going over uh, again some of these stats 35% of gender based violence survivors report not disclosing abuse because they felt that there was no one who they could tell and 27% felt that if they did come forward they would not be believed 32% did not disclose because they felt that they would be judged blamed or shamed 12% were afraid to report abuse, fearing that their abusers might find out. This number more than doubles uh, for 28% for racialized groups. And uh, 86% of people in Canada believe that they are able to support someone facing physical abuse, but only 66% of those who disclosed experiences uh, of this abuse felt that they were supported. So now, you know, maybe trying to put a bit of a positive spin on some of this, you know, going back to that first statistic, 35% of gender-based violence survivors are, uh, report not disclosing because they felt that there was no one they could tell. Well, it's that means 65% do feel comfortable coming forward. So again, not to downplay, because uh, obviously, you know, 35% afraid, being afraid to come forward uh, you know, we want to reduce that. But that's, you know, on the other, you know, 65% uh, is the opposite of that, right? So 32% did not disclose because they were felt that they would be judged, blamed, or shamed. And the opposite end of that is 68%. So 68% aren't worried about coming forward because they'll be judged, blamed, or shamed. I'm mean, just trying to put a little bit of a, a positive spin on some of these surveys. But of course, the most interesting part of it was that 23% of Canadians felt that it is none of my business if it doesn't directly involve me. And, you know, I, I see where, you know, I see where people are coming from, obviously, because, you know, just you want to keep your nose out of other people's business. But, you know, something serious like this, may, maybe you do need to step forward. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570, hands-free. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Thanks to Andrea Gunrash from the uh, Canadian Women's Foundation. She is vice president 
of public engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. Of course, today is uh, International Women's Day. A, a, a national poll by the Canadian Women's Foundation found that 23% of Canadians feel intimate partner violence is none of their business if it doesn't directly involve me. Furthermore, 46% say that gender-based violence feels too big for me to play a role in ending it. If you have a thought on our discussion this half hour, 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715. And star 570, hands-free. And if you want to call and just tell me about an inspiring woman in your life, I'd be, you know, we have time for that too. Maybe, you know, keep things uh, a little more on the positive side. Uh, Of course, of course, my mother is an inspiring woman. I think I think most people would look to their mothers, would they not? Right? Because you know, you know, they they taught them much of everything they know, and and they're always there to lend a helping hand, show you know, if to ask for advice or whatever. Jerry, go ahead. Good afternoon. Uh, well, I'll start off on the positive. And my my better half, she actually stood up in her first relationship, her first marriage, um, and it was. You know, her first husband was leader of a church. And so that certainly dropped a grenade in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she felt very alone. People that she thought were going to be there to help her, everybody went running for the hills. But, um, you know, she stood strong and she faced it. And she's certainly grown and she helps a lot of women today go through similar stuff. Mm-hmm. But for those people that say, I don't want to get involved because it doesn't involve me directly, a lot of the studies show this stuff is intergenerational. It gets passed on, passed on, passed mm-hmm. on, passed on. So I say for somebody that says, well, it's not directly affecting me, but what about your children? What about your grandchildren? Right. Because they could get, end up getting in a relationship as a direct result of somebody else's violence down the road. And and even as, as men or people, like if we see somebody that's not talking to somebody appropriately i i do think we have a duty to sort of call somebody say hey you know what i'm not okay with how you spoke to that person right and it yeah. could be something simply just call them out a little bit and you know because we will all get affected by this it's just if generation after generation after because the violence we're experiencing today didn't happen just all of a sudden the last 10 years mm-hmm. this has been passed down and learned and unfortunately replicated over you know, many, many generations. Yeah, because if you see it as a, a child, maybe maybe your parents were in that kind of a relationship, then you grow up thinking that's normal. Unfortunately, yeah, that uh, could be re- very well the case. And you, we do hear of a few really good cases. People see that and say, I'm not going to do that. But it's a, that's a tough thing. I'm certainly not a professional in it. But, you know, um, I, I do think, and, and people that think that, it's a difficult thing to, you know, why can't you just leave? And I would say an analogy like this. Imagine having a job that you hate. Mm-hmm. And that job is tied directly to your home, directly to your vehicle, directly to everything. So for you to leave that job, basically you become homeless, you lose your vehicle. Whether that's the truth or not, certainly in a lot of cases you, you hear that, the, the, I guess, the person committing the violence or the, that certainly overpowers the other person and makes them believe that, that I, they lose everything in order to leave. 
And, you know, just imagine leaving your job today, knowing that tomorrow you're homeless, you don't have a vehicle, you have nothing. Mm-hmm. How quick would you be willing to give up that job, Polly? Yeah, good point. Thanks for the call, Jerry. We are out of time. We've got to get to the news. Coming up next, seven ways to spot polarizing language and how to choose responsibly what to amplify online or in person. This is City News 570 Kitchener Today. Kitchener today on City News 570, producer Polly sitting in with you until 3 o'clock this afternoon. Well, words have consequences. They can make us feel love, anger, fear, hope. Those emotions, depending on how strongly they're felt, can incite actions. That's the beginning of a piece uh, written recently in The Conversation by Robert Danish. He's a professor of Department of Communication Arts right here at the University of Waterloo. And Robert joins us this afternoon to discuss that piece. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me today. Now, things certainly seem more divisive than five years ago or even two years ago. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, I think a lot has changed for humanity in the last 10 or 20 years. And part of that change has to do with the circulation and the use of social media. And it seems that as more and more of us use more and more social media, we begin to imitate or or enact the habits of communication that we find on there. And those habits are what we've known for almost 2,500 years, habits that are productive of the disagreements, anger, hostility, uh, aggression, etc. So we're seeing... Uh, kind of more and more of the kinds of communication habits that we know are are conducive to violence and to anger. Do you think people's frustration with the pandemic has made things even worse than they normally would have been? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that mitigates against the kinds of communication practices that are, are really kind of divisive is what we call in communication studies contact, like human face-to-face community-based contact with people that are strangers. And in situations where we have high degrees of contact with strangers, we have lower degrees of kind of hostile communicative interactions. And obviously one thing the pandemic has taken away is our kind of social interactions with strangers. We just don't do that as much as we did a few years ago. So your pieces uh, list seven ways that we can identify polarizing language. So number one yeah. is division slash identification, this this whole us versus them mentality. Yeah, this is as old as, for, for me, for what I study, it's as old as the people have been studying communication uh, for uh, thousands of years have known one way that you can um, mobilize action or create kind of a feeling in a group of people is to create a, a target enemy who you say, well, we're not like those people over there. Those people over there are worse than us. They're lower than us. They're less than us. And in fact, that was the key to the rise of fascism in the middle of the 20th century, kind of us-them language Mm -hmm. used by Hitler and others in in Europe. And we're seeing it again now with Putin in Ukraine. 
Um, it's as old as time, this kind of Assam language. And it's not true. It's, it's like never accurate. It's never the case that you are deeply, deeply different than me. It's the case that we're made to seem different than one another, and we're made to seem different for a purpose. And when someone's really invested in using this kind of us-them language, the purpose, purpose is often conflict. Like there's something to be gained from the conflict. I mean, I think, you know, if you peel back the onion a little bit, we'll find that we have a lot more in common than we do not in common, yet we always seem to focus on what we don't have in common. Exactly, yes. And we should ask ourselves, when someone is forcing us to focus on what we don't have in common, what are they getting out of that? What work is that doing? How is that positioning us as enemies and not as friends? And who benefits when we see each other as enemies and not as friends? And so one of the other things that's kind of everybody that studies media knows this conflict gets attention Mm -hmm. it gets our attention and so there's an investment in all sorts of media outlets to show the existence of conflict because people will watch they'll read they'll listen um so there's a kind of manufacturing in our moment of more and more conflict to gain more and more attention number two is hyperbole yeah yeah, this is uh, pretty straightforward. Exaggeration is also as old as we've been studying communication. And we know that one thing that exaggeration does is it get, gets attention. That's the purpose. So if you say to your friend, oh, this is the worst lunch I've ever had in my entire life, like you're asking your friend to pay attention to you. Mm-hmm. That's really what you want out of that. And because uh, our, our lives are so dominated by the media, those media systems know that attention equals money for them. Facebook knows attention equals money. Twitter knows attention equals money. Uh, that attention drives advertising revenue. So we see more and more hyperbole, more and more attempts to be uh, uh, really exaggerate something, exaggerate a difference, exaggerate whatever to get our attention. And w- by the way, we also know exaggeration and hyperbole are not helpful for good decision making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't work for that. They work to just get our attention and get us feeling something. Number three is false equivalence or a false analogy, you know, comparing apples to oranges. Yeah, there's a rule about the Internet that eventually every Internet conversation devolves into someone calling someone else Hitler or a Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a false analogy in, in, for what I study. And again, the, the, there's a reason why we use a false analogy. There's a reason so the trucker convoy in, in Ottawa uh, claiming that they were, you know, that the liberals are fascist and that... You know, they're suffering the same way that Jewish people suffered uh, during the middle of the century. Those are all false analogies. Why are they using them? Again, we have to pay attention to what work those, that words are doing to get attention, to get people upset, to, like, force us to say, no, 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 you're not. That's a false, to get us to say that's a false analogy. Once they have that, then attention is on the, the, the conflict, um, and we're, we're not going to win. We're not going to have a constructive conversation at that point. Number four is appealing to force. Yeah, this is the simplest one, really. Um, uh, so people have asked me often in my class to my students ask, well, well, what causes violence? And my reaction is almost always, well, violent language begets violent action. There has to be something that comes before a war or a fight uh, or whatever that is. And the most simple form of violent rhetoric or violent speech is a straight-up threat. Okay, if you don't do that, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. Uh, it's likely we should take a person 
uh, at face value who says that. If they're verbally threatening us, mm-hmm. it's likely that the threat will escalate to violence at, at some point. And I feel like we see uh, on, on social media, especially, we see kind of a flood of violent responses. So even in response to my, my conversation, one of my conversation articles, I got a bunch of violent emails from people with that make these appeals to, to threats. Mm-hmm. Number five is name calling. Yeah, again, and this is a simple one that even even kids know. Um, so well, they're called ad hominem attacks in, in ancient in Latin. Um, and we know that they're not constructive to collaborative conversations or, or uh, problem solving conversations. And that's because we're just reducing people to some simple characteristic that we can make fun of. Um, people are complicated. They're multidimensional. They believe different things. But when we just call them names, we're reducing them. We're making them smaller um, so that we can position them in opposition to us. And uh, number six is objectification. Yeah, this goes right along with with calling people names. Uh you, you know, and this is something I spend a lot of time with my students on. We have a choice when we walk through the world. We can either choose to treat people as objects for our use, as things we can get stuff from or things we can use to advance our own interests, or we can treat them as, as people with complicated thoughts and feelings, uh, with their own agency. Well, objectification is the process of treating other people like objects. And as soon as we treat them like objects, there, we we feel justified in submitting them to violence. Uh, if we see them as multidimensional, as complicated, as thoughtful, as having agency, it's much harder for us to attack them violently. And number seven is overgeneralization, you know, painting everyone with the same broad brush. Yeah, we, and I think these are all related. I think it's important to remember they're, that they're related. A lot of hyperbole is also overgeneralization, right? Like all liberals are fascists or all conservatives are racists, uh, anytime, anytime we hear the word all in front of any, every se- any sentence, it's almost always wrong. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, and we know it's wrong, but we're just doing it to kind of demonize a whole group and let one person bear the responsibility for whatever that trait is that we're trying to identify with that whole group. So why can't, you know, people just kind of go their own way. Say, you know, you know, you do me. Oh, sorry, you do you. I'll be me. Why? Why do we feel that we have to force other people to to see the world the way we see it? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think I think we have to remember that people are um, animals that imitate other people like them or other animals like them. So the way we learn especially the way we learn communication is by imitation. And one of the things that I kind of, I think characterizes our moment is this circulation and amplification of the habits that we just talked about. And so people think that it's normal to just go about the world overgeneralizing, attacking other people's character, threatening them. I mean, we just suffered through four years of having Donald Trump on TV all the time. And all he did was threaten people, objectify them, talk about us and them. And so that gets normalized. And I don't think people naturally or instinctively want to hate other people, Mm -hmm. but they do instinctively imitate the communication patterns and practices they see in their world. And if this is what they see, then that's what they'll, well, what they'll imitate. And then we'll have a world that's characterized by lots of, lots of conflict. And even though that people might not desire that, 
on a deep kind of level. They just don't know what other practices are available. Robert, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Sure. I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to talk to you. Thank you. Robert Danish, he's a professor of Department of Communication Arts at the University of Waterloo. If you have some thoughts, love to hear them. 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715. And star 570. I, I don't mention my email or my Twitter that often, but if you do want to email me your thoughts, you can as well. Paul H., at 570news.com, Paul H. at 570news.com. And on Twitter, I'm at producer Polly. So this article is titled Seven Ways to Spot Polarizing Language and How to Choose Responsibly What to Amplify Online or in Person. That's uh, That was written by Robert Danish, professor of Department of Communication Arts right here at the University of of Waterloo. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. I mean, we just suffered through four years of having Donald Trump on TV all the time, and all he did was threaten people, objectify them, talk about us and them. And so that gets normalized. And I don't think people naturally or instinctively want to hate other people, but they do instinctively imitate the communication patterns and practices they see in their world. And if this is what they see, then that's what they'll imitate. And then we'll have a world that's characterized by lots of lots of conflict. And even though that people might not desire that on a deep kind of level, they just don't know what other practices are available. Robert Danish, he's a professor of Department of Communication Arts at the University of Waterloo, joined us a few moments ago to discuss a recent piece that he wrote called Seven Ways to Spot Polarizing, Polarizing Language and How to Choose Responsibly What to Amplify Online or In Person. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570, hands-free. He's come up with... You know, seven different ways that you can spot polarizing language. Number one is division slash identification, this whole us versus them mentality. You know, you look at people in groups, there's, there's us, then there's them, and the people on the other side are, are, are evil. Number two is hyperbole, and he gave the example of you know, people exaggerating like, oh, this is the worst lunch I've ever had. Is it? Is it really? Or are you just trying to, you know, get the attention of, of people in the room? So, yeah, number two is hyperbole. Number three is a false equivalence or false analogy, you know, comparing apples to oranges, you know, not even making, you know, similar comparisons. And, you know, by saying, you know, by, by saying it, you know, all, any, everybody I don't like is Hitler, that that might be that's certainly in almost every case is not a fair comparison. Maria, go ahead. You know everything he just said, all the six or seven points. To me, that describes Justin Trudeau, the division that he's caused amongst the people. Mm-hmm. He did separate separate the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. He did call us names, said we were racist, misogynistic. Amongst other things, like everything that he described, that's what Justin Trudeau has done to Canada. And the media, the media saying everything's disinformation or they're only, you know, putting out one narrative. Like, 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, made a big mistake when he, you know, referred to the people who are, you know, heading to Ottawa in that convoy as, you know, a small fringe minority with unacceptable views. Like that's that I mean, you're, you're not bringing people together. The people who support you, you might be going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's you're pushing people apart when you make comments like that. John Doe, go ahead. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Just swallowing a, mouth bur- a mouthful of my burger. <clears throat> you know, the reference to Hitler. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, uh, that's an extremist. Okay, but there's also extremists in the other direction. Okay. Um, what if you describe, uh, call, call somebody a Stalinist? Yeah, you never, he, you don't really hear that one, do you? Right, because they always want to use, you know, Hitler as the example. They'll never use Stalin as an example. You know, and majority of people are somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I've always noticed, the liberals are the ones that want to put labels on people. The uh, a conservative would see a group of people. A liberal would see an Asian, uh, uh, a black, uh, you know, all, all these different ones. They want The liberals are always the ones that seem to be putting labels on people. So why is that? I don't know. It's why, a, it's, why it's, a liberal? And, you know, I can tell you why it is. Okay. Liberals, as long as they can divide up everybody into these tiny little groups, like you've got this group over here based on skin color, you've got this group over here based on religion, this one based on language, whatever it is, however they divide them up, by dividing them up into these tiny little groups and causing friction, fighting, infighting between those individual groups, that's how the liberals win. Because as long as people are fighting amongst each other, the, uh, they're not going to realize just what it is that the uh, uh, party in power is doing to you. Whereas... Uh, people more towards the right or even, you know, uh, right center, right, you know, they look and they see a group of people. They don't they don't pigeonhole everybody like a liberal does. A liberal has to put a label on everyone. The uh, And th- this is their method of dividing people up so they never really notice just what the liberal party is doing to them. Thanks for the call, John. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think... You know, you know, both, or maybe I guess there's more than two sides of the political spectrum, I guess. But I think everybody tends to, you know, people who disagree with them, I think, are seen in a group. And I, 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 I what I'm saying, I think it's, I think we're guilty on on both sides. But I, I see your point that you know, some people see are more likely, more inclined to see, you know, people they oppose to as a as a group as opposed to individuals. Uh, just finishing off this uh, this list of seven ways to uh, you know identify polarizing language, this whole appealing to force thing, and you know what our guest said was, you know if someone threatens violence, if someone says you know you know take one more step and I'm going to punch you in the nose, take that seriously. If it is a threat of force then it actually, I think he said it was statistically more likely to end up that way. Uh, Number five is name-calling. That's the oldest one in the book. 
you know, if, you know, some people think that you know if you've you've lost an argument when you've thrown you know an insult of some sort. Number six is objectification, treating people as if they were objects, not seeing them as you know the humans that they are. And number seven is overgeneralization, and it goes going back to the call that we just talked uh, took from John, the overgeneralization, painting everyone with the same brush. We're going to go to news here. Coming up next, you know, with things opening back up and, you know, people wanting to travel, what about travel insurance? Is this this something that we should be considering? I honestly have never bought in travel insurance. But this this article said, uh, with new travel rules, make sure you're properly protected in case of illness or Injury. We're talking about that next. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Producer Polly in with you today. With the Omicron variant in retreat, many Canadians are planning March break getaways after two long years of staying home. Popular destinations usually include out-of-country locales. However, it's important to ensure that you have the appropriate travel and medical insurance. Medical bills can quickly accumulate in foreign countries and not having proper insurance means unlimited and unplanned spending. Rajiv Hate is a personal injury lawyer at Kotak Personal Injury Law. He joins us to discuss this further. Rajiv, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I've honestly, you know, I love traveling like most people do, but I've honestly never signed up for insurance when traveling. Uh, why would it, Why would you say it's important to do so? Uh, it's, it's a great question, and uh, it's uh, quite often that people have that mindset because, you know, you're going on vacation, traveling to enjoy, and you're not expecting something to go wrong. Unfortunately, life often has unexpected circumstances that occur. And the risk of traveling without any kind of travel insurance is that if you get injured while away, you may not have any kind of coverage for medical bills. Uh, and, and those bills can be quite costly. And, and not only medical bills, but also if you require accommodations, whether it's, you know, nowadays with COVID, having to quarantine, or even if it's accommodations with respect to traveling, trying to get you back home to Canada. Uh, All of those can be quite costly if you are dealing with a serious injury. Uh, For example, I did some preliminary research. It shows that in the United States, just our neighboring country, fixing a broken leg could cost $7,500. The average cost of a one-day hospital visit that is not an overnight stay is over Mm $2,600. And the average cost of an overnight hospital stay is $11,700 for one night overnight in, in the U.S. That's the average cost you know, across the country. So, you know, it can be quite costly if you were to get injured and uh, you don't have any travel insurance to cover those expenses. And would you say it's more important to have insurance even these days coming out of the pandemic? Absolutely. Uh, and, and not only is it more important to have insurance, I think it's extremely important to call the insurance provider and ensure that you have coverage for whatever the purpose of your trip may be that you're, you're traveling for, but also coverage for uh, 
issues related to COVID-19. You know, if you contract a a virus, uh, the virus uh, in a foreign country, uh, you want to make sure that if you require medical treatment as a result of that, that you have coverage for that. And I say that because often insurance policies have various exclusions and limitations. Uh, Sometimes those include where they don't cover uh, a a, a communicable disease or something of that nature. So that's where you just want to ensure that you do have, have the proper coverage in place, especially now with what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, often policies also don't cover ex- uh, exclusions such as acts of war, insurrection, or acts of terrorism, for example. So if you're traveling to an area that may happen to be near a combat zone and you get, again, injured as a, as a result of, of something that's that due to the combat, you may not have coverage for that either. So, uh, you know, again, that's why I think it is extremely important to have travel insurance when you are traveling. Now, with our healthcare system here in Canada, and more specifically here in Ontario, we have OHIP. Would would anything regarding OHIP cover us in in another country? It, that really depends on the circumstances that leads to the claim. But often, if the event occurs in another country, OHIP does not uh, cover those fees. Often, it, it is not something that's covered. Uh, it, it, when you return to Ontario, then there may be some, some medical uh, coverage there. Uh, but often, when it occurs outside of uh, the country, it's not covered by, by OHIP. Now, what if we just stay within our country? Maybe we go to a different province or something. Would Is getting insurance still important in that circumstance? I, I think it is. Uh, again, I think it's important to at least call the provider and find out what kind of coverage that they're, they're willing to offer you uh, and what exactly it, it entails. Uh, because, again, you just never know. I mean, if it's within Canada, likely you'd have some, some coverage through the government. If not OHIP, then maybe the federal government will likely help out as a citizen. But, I, again, I still think it is important to ensure that you do have coverage with traveling. Now, if we travel to another country that has... Uh, a similar healthcare system to ours, like you know the UK, for example, would their system cover travelers, or is it only the taxpayers within that country? I, I'm not familiar with their system specifically, but typically, just like in Ontario, um, coverage uh, is usually for for citizens of the the country or the province or the region. Right. So uh, often as a visitor, you don't always have insurance. And I, I can say that I've got a, a number of clients that are uh, not from Ontario. And if they get injured here, you know, for example, foreign students, uh, they do not have OHIP coverage. And, and even though OHIP will provide them treatment, there's also a large bill that's attached to that treatment uh, that is, they're going to have to be reimbursed for at a certain point in time. Now, many people have insurance up an insurance policy through their employer, and some of that includes you know, traveling, if you should do that, would that typically be good enough? Like, you know, your typical employment insurance plan? That's a great question. What I find is that employment insurance plans are usually the basic plans. So uh, the extent to which coverage uh, goes is is usually more limited when it's an employer-covered plan. And that's where I would, again, say contact the provider and find out what exactly is covered. And importantly, what are the exclusions and limitations? Often, those plans have exclusions also for something known as a pre-existing condition. So it's important to be at what those are because if you have one of those pre-existing conditions, 
information, you may not get coverage in any event. And, and so again, it is important to, to call and check. Now, often if you have an insurance uh, policy through work, some of them also offer long-term disability benefit policies or short-term disability benefit policies. So that may still be something to fall back on in the event you are injured to the point you're unable to work. At least you could have something to potentially cover your income. Uh, but in terms of travel insurance specifically, again, I would just check with the provider, find out exactly what they cover and what are the uh, exclusions or limitations under that expected policy. Now, if we're not covered through work or we don't, you know, have an existing policy, do we, like, if I was to leave the country for seven days, do you know roughly how much I'd be looking at? And I'm guessing there's different plans that cover, you know, different scenarios that you might experience, right? Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't be able to to speculate on uh, the cost of a plan simply because every insurance company is different, but every individual is different. They often assess uh, the amount of what they're going to charge you uh, based on your own uh, health and and based on uh, your age and and a number of factors go go into consideration. Also, what is the purpose of your trip? Uh, I can imagine if the purpose of your trip is to go, let's say, to a dangerous activity like skydiving, for example, uh, perhaps that insurance might be more expensive than if you're just going to the beach, right? So again, I think there's a number of factors there that would come into play. Yeah, and that was one of the, there's a list of tips here uh, that I have in front of me, and that's one of them. Ensure that your travel and medical insurance is appropriate for the kind of trip and the activities that you expect to enjoy while on that trip. Exactly. You know, because if you do plan on doing some of those, uh, you know, dangerous activities or, or more adventurous activities that are more likely to lead to uh, an injury, uh, then you want to ensure, again, that your insurance does cover it. Uh, and if it doesn't, uh, you know, and same with the, you were mentioning in insurance through your employer, if, if it is a, a basic uh, policy or if there's, there's coverage that's somewhat limited, you can always ask them as well if you could pay more to have uh, some extended coverage. Uh, and I would recommend that. You know, it might cost a little bit more, but it's worthwhile because if you do end up getting injured, especially if you're out of the country, uh, it can be very, very costly uh, and, and very, very stressful to deal with if you have no insurance to help you out. It also says here now that the federal travel warning is removed, a properly issued traveler may get full medical coverage if hospitalized outside of Canada due to COVID-19. Yeah, and and so that, again, is going to depend on the uh, policy of insurance and the insurance company itself. Uh, But often, uh, when there are federal guidelines in place that are telling you do not travel, uh, right off the bat, insurance companies will use that to their advantage and say, well, we're not going to cover you. There are federal guidelines telling you do not travel. Now that that's removed, they likely couldn't rely on that uh, as much anymore, but I would still just clarify with them to ensure that if you are hospitalized or or have issues due to COVID-19, that you would still have coverage for that. And that you should consider coverage that includes expenses in the case of having to quarantine such as accommodations, food, or transportation. Exactly. And that's what I was referring to earlier, that uh, if you are having to quarantine, you know, you might end up having to stay in a, in a hotel or somewhere for five to 10 days. That can be quite costly. And also having to travel back to to uh, uh, Canada, that could also be costly if, you know, your, your flight ends up getting canceled because of, of your, your injury or illness. And so just ensuring that you have something to cover all of those expenses, it, it really is in your best interest to do so. And where are we right now in regards to cruise ships? I thought I saw a story on the news. Actually, I think it was this morning that cruise ships, as long as everybody is vaccinated and whatnot, are allowed to again dock in Canada. 
you know, from what I was aware of, the government was still advising to avoid uh, traveling on cruise ships outside of Canada because of COVID. If that changed this morning itself, I, I may not have, have seen that this morning. But from the last that I saw, that the, the government was still advising to avoid traveling on, on cruise ships. Yeah, and it was. I wasn't paying full attention. I just, I, it, it, you might be right as well, but I, I remember seeing something on the news this morning about about cruise ships returning to Canada. So again, I I didn't get the whole story, but anyway, uh, Rajiv, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Rajiv Hate is a personal injury lawyer at Kotak Personal Injury Law, and uh, advises that when you when you do travel you should consider getting travel insurance, especially if you're not already covered by your existing employee plan. Now, here at the station, we do have a pretty decent insurance package. I know it includes some form of travel. I have honestly haven't looked up exactly what is covered and what is not covered with our specific insurance plan. But, uh, you know, the insurance, you know, might not be a terrible idea because, you know, as you get older, you might be more, you know, susceptible to injury. And then also with with insurance, with things like airline tickets, like just before the pandemic, my wife and I had a flight booked and we booked it and it was the, the trip was supposed to be in April of 2020. And we booked it in November. The airline was having a big airline sale. We're like, this is too good to pass up. And let's, you know, let's book this thing. I think it was a Black Friday sale, actually. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, let's not get the insurance. What's going to happen? <laughs> Whoops, pandemic happened. Now, luckily, the airline, because of the extreme circumstances of the pandemic, Everybody, regardless of whether or not they bought refundable tickets or regardless of whether or not they, you know, got insurance in the event that you had to cancel the flight, every flight that was bought and paid for was subject to that refund. So we hit a lucky one there for sure, but I'm not sure whether or not I would fly somewhere again without buying some sort of option to be able to you know, get that money back in the event that the flight is canceled for whatever reason. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570, hands-free. Kyle, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, Paulie. Um, so I was actually, it's funny you were talking about this topic because three weeks ago I sent my uh, my house insurance uh, provider mm-hmm. a question about uh, travel insurance because I do travel quite a bit uh, in the summertime and the wintertime. And my other biggest question I had was that I didn't hear, and maybe you could answer this, is what about if I go from a di- to a different province? Like I go skiing in Whistler and Banff every couple of years. So if I get injured there, does my, like obviously my OHIP here in Canada is not going to cover my injury costs, correct? Uh I you know how that works. I did ask our guest about that. He said, "I mean, it could it could depend if you stay within the country. It it you know your insurance or I guess our our government system should cover us. Although I guess you know like we're covered you know province by province though, right? And so, but it, again, it might be worth checking with your provider. But in terms of OHIP, I'm not sure whether it would cover in another province. Maybe maybe someone out there listening has had an experience where they've traveled to another province and gotten injured 
And does that province's system cover you, even though you're a Canadian system or a Canadian, uh, uh, you know, Citizen. but not yeah, from yeah. that province? I don't know, Kyle. Yeah, no, it's, uh, that's, what, like, that's the main reason why I'm looking at getting traveling insurance, not just because I want to go abroad and go to Europe and South Africa and stuff, but also because I'm go, I go a lot within Canada, right? So knock right. on wood, I haven't broken anything yet. Mm-hmm. I don't plan on it, but uh, you never know I'm getting older. So anyway, yeah. thanks, thanks for the call, Kyle. And I, our guest was saying, too, I mean, regardless of whether you're traveling in Canada or out of Canada, whether you know whether or not you know it, OHIP might cover you for that, it still is worth looking into. You know, travel insurance just to make sure you're covered. Make sure to have you have all your bases covered. Five one nine five seventy twenty five forty five out of town one eight hundred five seventy fifty seven fifteen and star five seventy hands free. Do you have an experience with travel insurance? Have you ever been injured? while on a trip and did you have the insurance did you i'd be curious to hear some of your stories if if you have any have you ever been injured when traveling outside of the country and did you have insurance did it come in handy or did you have to pay the whole bill out of pocket mary go ahead hi i'm surprised that you have never got insurance out of no my gosh you're living by the seat of your pants <laughs> <laughs> now, Mary, you do a lot of traveling between Canada and the U.S., right? Well, for three months, yeah, that's yeah. not all. But I've gone all over the place, and um, and I've always and and you are right. Um, um, the um, provincial, like OHIP, is Ontario, mm-hmm. and I have gone, uh, you know, to Newfoundland and Vancouver and all that. And I think I took the chance. But it wouldn't be as exorbitant as if you had something happened to you in the States. Right. Of course not. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Yeah. But here I'm going to give you another tip because you're a young man. <laughs> Thanks, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to get um, um, through my credit card. Oh, yeah, that's right. Some credit sure. card. I, I've never looked into that, that sometimes your credit card will cover you for some stuff. For, well, for a certain amount of time. But once you're 65, you're toast. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Then they don't do it. But um, so I often, if I wasn't going for a long time, like it might have covered me for two weeks. So you look into all your credit cards and see what 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 uh, you get covered through them. So I, I guess to be covered on your credit card, you have to make the purchase on the card, right? What purchase. Right, like if you purchase a plane ticket or something, or or like no, you know, no, well, no. no. No, you just look at what the what the rules are on your card. See, I didn't. And, so, just so, by nature of being, I, I see, I don't know this, Mary. So, just just no. by being in nature that you are a customer of a credit card, they will sometimes cover you for things that yeah. weren't really. Yeah, like if you're going to Las Vegas, like like I said, I don't know what they do now because mm-hmm. I've been out of the system for a while. But that was a nice kind of little perk because you didn't have to go fussing around about getting extra and. Um, um, you know, it might be two weeks. Well, you might go down to Las Vegas for a week, mm-hmm. and you'd be covered on that. So you check out all your um, your credit cards to oh. see. Um, of course, you could probably Google it, but they give you a little book, but I don't like reading those books. <laughs> but, but I will say this much. Uh, I did take advantage of that many a time, um, you know, before I turned 65. And, you know, it's so easy is you just know you're going to be taken care of. 
I never thought of the credit card option, Mary. Thank you for, you know what, I'm going to, I think I have some reading to do tonight. (laughs) Read my credit card policy. Oh, that's an exciting night in the producer Polly household. Anna, go ahead. Hi, how are you? Good. I just wanted to call and just, I mean, I'm your friendly neighborhood banker, and I know a ton about travel insurance because that's something that we uh, deal with at work. Right. But Mary is right. A lot of the credit cards do cover you for travel insurance, but some of them have stipulations that require you to at least either book the flight or the hotel for the coverage to kick in. Right. Yeah, of course. Some of them also have restrictions on how many times a year they'll cover you for travel. So if you book like five flights, they only might cover four. Right. Uh, however, if you buy travel insurance separately, you can buy annual policies that will cover you on numerous trips as well. Right. And OHIP does not pay for out-of-province injuries. Even out-of-province, right. Really, eh? So definitely worth looking into. Um, oftentimes, the travel insurance that you pay for when you book a flight and stuff is quite expensive. And if you're already paying an annual fee in your credit card, you get it for free. So definitely look into that before you book anything. Ah, yeah, well, I do pay an annual fee on my credit card. My my wife says, why are you paying fees? But it's stuff like this where it comes in handy, eh? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind, they'll also have numbers for you to call, and you should print those off before you go on your trip because then you're not scrambling looking for them. And another awesome thing is that a lot of people's uh, employment insurance, like their insurance and benefits through work, mm-hmm. cover travel insurance as well. So another thing to look through um, mine, for example, covers $2 million for out-of-country uh, travel insurance, so right. that's something to look into. Thank you very much, Anna. This was a very informative phone call. Yeah, I hope that we all get to go on trips soon, and we can get the advantage of all of our insurance. Of course. Thank you very much. Wow. That was the most informative one minute and 42 seconds I've ever had on the radio. John Doe, we have about one minute. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, prior to retirement, I was on the road uh two or three weeks out of uh, every month. Um, now, you talk about injuries. Injuries I don't know about, but I had a heart attack when I was out uh, out west, out in uh, Alberta. Oh, wow, yeah. Every, everything was covered. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. The, uh, like, I didn't get a bill or anything like that. Right. Uh, it just went through OHIP. And you just gave him your Ontario health card, and away you go? Yep. Ah. Huh. Okay, interesting. Okay. I guess no. That was that was a few years ago, so right. I don't know if anything's changed. Yeah, but, uh, that's the way it was then. Yeah, and good of point. course, when I was traveling through the U.S. instead, um, two things: I had uh, full coverage through work, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I didn't have to worry too much there. But I also put everything on my Visa card, so. Uh, one way or another, I had coverage. Right. All right. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, John. I, I, I Maybe the moral of the story is definitely make sure you're covered if you leave the country. And I, I think maybe on our next trip, and my wife and I are just starting now to talk about our next trip, wherever that's going to be, maybe I do look into travel insurance. We're going to take a break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. I did some preliminary research. It shows that in the United States, just our neighboring country, fixing a broken leg could cost $7,500. The average cost of a one-day hospital visit that is not an overnight stay is over $2,600. And the average cost of an overnight hospital stay is $11,700 for one night overnight in in the U.S. That's the average cost across the country. So, you know, it can be quite costly if you were to get injured and uh, you don't have any travel insurance to cover those expenses. Rajiv Hate joining us. He's a personal injury lawyer at Kotak 
personal injury law advises we should probably get that travel insurance you know it went now that we're traveling again especially after covid-19 you could still get covid while you know out traveling and travel insurance may even cover some expenses involved with that we're going to take a break for news coming up next debbie chapman will be joining us she's the ward 9 counselor for the city of kitchener this uh, this latest proposal these buildings they keep getting higher and higher here in kitchener we'll find out all about the latest project that is being proposed coming up next this is city news 570 kitchener today Producer Polly in with you today on Kitchener Today on City News 570. A proposal to erect Waterloo Region's tallest tower yet was discussed for five hours at a committee meeting on Monday night. And in the end, councillors voted to defer their decision to council meeting in two weeks. So the, uh, the property we're talking about, it's on the corner of Francis Street South and Charles Street West. West, if you can picture that. Now, Debbie Chapman is Ward 9 Counselor for the City of Kitchener and joins us to discuss it further. Uh, Debbie, which, because that corner, there's kind of there's kind of four parking lots of, I think, on that, or the three, sorry, three of the uh, uh, corners on that parking, uh, on that intersection are parking lots. Which one are we talking about? Yeah, hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, we're talking about the one beside the U-Haul um, company. Right. And there's also a little on, so that's on the, I guess that's the north side. Right. And on the east side is the a little parquette. Right. And a cycling shop on King Street. So, so that's, it's that whole block. So well, not that it's going to be developed, but it's in that block. <laughs> So it, it, will, will U-Haul stay there then? Like, or like, yeah. Okay. Yep. U-Haul, U-Haul has no plans to, to move. Yeah. So take me through the history of this property and the decision to build a, a, or the proposal to build a condo development there. Well, it's been a parking lot. I don't know when the developer acquired it. You'd have to speak mm-hmm. to you know, how they came to own the, the property. Um, but I can tell you that the, first time that this was brought to a public neighbor, it's called a neighborhood information meeting, it had a particular design and there have been two modified design proposals that have um, come to us since then. So including changing from zero commercial units on the main floor to three units of commercial um, on the main floor to now possibly five, that will have to be determined at the council meeting. Right. And also three-bedroom units that weren't in the first proposal. Um, so things have changed from the first iteration. But, um, yeah, so now we have the, the size of the building never changed. So it's always been proposed as a 44-story mixed-use development. Right. Um, and so are, are you happy that the uh, with these changes that the developer has, has changed a couple of times that, that, that now some of the... Property, you know, some of the spaces on this property are going to be uh, commercial. Do you yeah, like I this commercial residential mix? Yeah, I think that's a very positive thing. Um, the originally on the Francis side of the building, it was going to be two 
like a yoga studio and a workout room that were only going to be available to the residents of the unit of the of the building, and they've now agreed to make those two um, units into publicly accessible units. So whether they be a yoga studio or a small restaurant or who knows what what might end up being there, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't be exclusive to the residents of the building. So that's very positive because having that that connection with the the um, streetscape and the community is, you know, with a, a, a building of this size, it's really important to have that that connection. So I guess when approving a, you know, a condominium, I guess any condominium project, but particularly one that's going to be this tall, I guess it's it's a difficult balancing act to balance, you know, the you know the housing needs of the city with what residents in the area uh, are looking for. Is yeah, that, is that a sure. tough balancing act? It's a very tough balancing act, and um, it's it's tough because it, it what it requires residents to do and city council members is to learn the um, the provincial planning act and learn the the Kitchener um, official plan and the, our own planning bylaws and and zoning bylaws. So. All of those things take take time to, to understand and to make sense of. So it's not just, I don't want a tall building in my backyard. It's how does this fit into, first of all, maybe the downtown vision, the p- downtown planning vision. How does this um, fit into the neighbourhood? How does it um, comply with the, the planning act it's, it, it's itself or the you know our own internal documents at the city? So it, it's that, but then um, I've been amazed at how knowledgeable residents are becoming at every turn as we get new development proposals. Um, I didn't see this at the beginning of my um, time on city council, but it's it's quite astonishing and um, very knowledgeable um, things that um, people are, are coming up with. So, How important are these units to the region's housing supply? Well, I mean, we're told over and over again that we have a, a deficit of, of housing. Um, um, a lot of, unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of the these new developments are proposing one-bedroom units or maybe one-bedroom plus den. I, I'm not quite sure when we're going to realize that, well, maybe we need, you know, not just five three-bedroom apartments or units, but rather maybe 50% of them need to be need to be three-bedroom or at least a combination of two and three bedrooms. So we're not there yet. Um, I, you know, it's hard to know how many one-bedroom condos we actually need, and if um, they're going to be occupied. Now the decision. So housing, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, we do need more housing. I mean, no question. Um, I don't think anybody's questioning that. It's how how do we go about it? So the decision was made to defer this decision for another two weeks. Why was that decision made to defer? Well, it's not fully deferred. So we voted on the the recommendation and it was passed. Um, So what will happen on the 21st is it's... um, There was an amendment to the original motion to defer, but because it was voted against... What will be what will happen on the twenty first is the developer will come back and report on a number of items that weren't in the recommendation, but that they had committed to do 
while in the meeting last night. And so it would be a, an opportunity to formalize those things. So the the uh, developer has donated $300,000 to St. Peter's Lutheran Church, and he I believe he, he offered to double that last night. Is that correct? Yeah, he, he agreed to donate from his own um, pocket $275,000 based on a every dollar that was that people would donate he would match it mm-hmm. up to $275,000 from his own pocket. So, yeah, that would be um certainly put Indwell who would be the service provider at that um site at St. Peter's Church um the opportunity to to then get more funding from the provincial, federal and regional governments to proceed with their development. Do we know at what point this development might start and might open? It will probably start soon. I I know the developer last night said, let's start now. We've got to get this approved right now because we want to get started. So I wouldn't be surprised if it starts this year, but it will take two or three years to get finished. And this development, uh, the proposal as it's proposed right now is going to be 44 stories. Is that too tall, do you think? Um, some people think it's just fine. Um, I, my biggest concern with it is the, um, the way we got to the 44 stories through this um, process we call bonusing. Um, so that's my biggest concern. Is 44 stories too tall for that location? My, you know, from the very beginning, I said, well, if there's a, any good place for a 44-story building, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I start looking at the planning process, that's when I start wondering if um, if we're doing a you know engaging in a in a negotiation and a process that that maybe um, isn't the best way to get to 44 stories I guess one of the, one of the things that um, we're dealing with right now is that the what's called the urban growth center and the major transit station areas um, which are those areas I think about 800 meters um, circling the, the ion stations and the UGC is sort of the downtown area. We don't have a, an updated, revised um, zoning bylaw or specifications for each property, and so it, it's it's awkward and, and difficult to know what is will be allowable on each of those properties once that update comes to us. Um, so we're working from a bylaw zoning bylaw from 1985 Mm -hmm. and um you know the sooner we get this document updated i think the easier these things will will become for everybody so there were a number of delegations that spoke both for and against this last night what were some of the objections that some of the delegates were were uh, posing about this project well of course some are, are, are very concerned with the height um, there were a number of people who spoke up against or uh, concerned about the lack of green space in downtown, and we've heard this over and over again. Um, Victoria Park is, is a lovely park, but the more we build up around it, the, the smaller that park is going to become. Um, so that was certainly a, a concern that um, people expressed and have expressed. There were concerns about um, traffic on in the area, Halls Lane, concerns about the setback of the building because there's virtually very little setback, so that means no greening on the on the main floor. 
their concerns about the, the commercial space. It has been somewhat rectified. Um, but just, you know, that connection with, with the, um, with the, the streetscape. So there were, there were, I mean, I, we were up late last night, so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. maybe I'm not doing it justice, but, um, yeah, so there were, there were concerns about the, the bonusing, not just my concerns, but concerns by other people talking about the, um, you know, why would you get bonusing for, bicycle parking in a building, right? It right. doesn't mean you should get more stories because you're putting bike racks. That should just be a given. So things like that. Do we know if there's going to be a parking garage with this facility? Because, I mean, obviously 44 stories, that's a lot of people living there. Or are we hoping to attract people who are going to be uh, rely more on transit? Yeah, I don't have the parking ratio in front of me, but there is definitely a parking garage. And if I'm not mistaken, it's two stories underground. Um, six stories above ground. So mm-hmm. it would be like a podium of parking with some units on the Francis side, I think. I think I've got that right. Councillor Chapman, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Have a good afternoon. You too. Debbie Chapman, Ward 9 Councillor for the City of Kitchener, joining us to discuss this this proposed, I don't think it's been, a, it hasn't been fully approved yet, but the the ball is certainly rolling on this 44-story tower, which is being proposed for the corner of Francis Street South and Charles Street West. So think, you know, one block, I guess that would be one block west of King Street. And for those of I'm very familiar with that area because our radio station used to be located right in that area, literally a half block from this proposed location. We were there for many, many years, and now we moved over to the the boardwalk here. So, you know, this is an interesting, you know, as Debbie was saying, a, a balancing act because, you know, we've, you know, we've heard time and time again that there, you know, there's a shortage of housing or some people have even described it as a housing crisis. And so, you know, how, how does this building fit into, you know, the region's, view of more housing 44 stories that is really going to change the the look of downtown there's the building i can't remember how many stories it is it's it's at the corner of duke and frederick i believe it's currently under construction and i think that one is currently the tallest one but this one will dwarf that by i think what, eight or nine floors? I was talking to Mike Farwell about this this morning. And that one, because sometimes I'll I'll drive up to Alora and come in, you know, down Catherine Street. And when I'm about to turn left at the end of Catherine Street, I can see that huge tower from all the way, you know, in the Bridgeport area. I'm even beyond Bridgeport at that point. So I wonder what this this new 44-story tower is going to look like really changing the look of downtown. I was, I was mentioning the building that the radio station used to be in. That is an 11-story building, the building at the corner of King and Water Street, 305 King in downtown Kitchener. And when that building was built, that was the tallest building, I believe, in town at the time. And that building was built early 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, I believe. And at 11 stories, that was the tallest building 
in the city at the time. And so this one is going to dwarf that 44 stories at the corner of Francis Street South and Charles Street West, right next to where the U-Haul depot is right now. What do you think of this? Is this too tall or does this meet the region's housing needs? What do you think? 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715. And star 570, you can also reach me via email, Paul H at 570news.com, Paul H at 570news.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter as well, at Producer Pauly. This is City News 570, Kitchener Today. Changing from zero commercial units on the main floor to three units of commercial on the main floor to now possibly five, that will have to be determined at the council meeting, and also three-bedroom units that weren't in the first proposal. So things have changed from the first iteration. So now we have the, the size of the building never changed. So it's always been proposed as a 44-story mixed-use development. City of Kitchener Ward 9 Councillor Debbie Chapman joining us a few moments ago to discuss this 44-story tower condo tower which is being proposed for the corner of francis street and charles street in downtown kitchener donna you're on the air go ahead good afternoon Polly. 44 stories yeah (laughs) my biggest concern is if there's a fire how are you coming down and if there's a power outage how are you going up or down but one thing I want to say is, you know, the new condo that's gone in where the Trinity Church was, corner of Duke and Frederick? Mm-hmm. That's an amazing building because, I don't know, I think it's 39 stories Something high. like that, yeah. From various points around Kitchener, whether you're on Cortland or you're over on Homer Watson, all of a sudden you just kind of look over there, and that's all you see up in the sky. Yeah, and this one's so, going to be about seven or eight stories yeah. taller than that one, I think. Crazy. Yeah. It's, 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 the city's come a long way from the city that you and I grew up in, Donna. You darn right. When I was here in the 60s, what did you say was the first apartment? Uh, sorry, what was that? You said something about there was an apartment. I didn't catch the address. That was first 11 stories. Well, the building that we used to be in, in downtown Kitchener at the corner of King and Water, oh. that's 11 stories. And the I think when that was Canada built, Trust Tower. the old Canada <laughs> Trust Tower, when that, when that was built in the late 50s, early 60s, I think that was the tallest tower at the time. Wow, that's neat. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Donna. Yeah, 44 stories at the corner of Francis Street and Charles Street. It'll be interesting to see what that looks like if that does come to pass. Kevin, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, Polly. I just wanted to say congratulations on your new position there. And well, I it's not, I'm just it. filling in a few times here and there. It's not a new position, but thank you. I know. <laughs> I, I listen every day, and I uh, I hear a lot of other callers calling in, but I'm telling you, man, you're the man for the job. Thank you very Take much, Kevin. The bank. You, you are real. You're an underdog, and you got trampled on by Burke and uh, Farwell before, but now that you're in the helm, take it to the limit, brother. Thanks you're a lot, a good Kevin. And to be on there, and I love <laughs> you as an interviewer. That, that, that's excellent. That's very nice, Kevin. That's very nice of you. You know, I, I hear that from time to time. You know, because my normal position, you know, I'm the producer of the show. And they go, well, they, they talk all over you or whatever, but it's, it, I, I, it's not my show. And I remember when I first started here, 
some 17 and a half years ago. Boy, oh boy. The program director at the time told me he, he didn't like producers on the air at all. Now, things have loosened up a little bit since then, not only here, but in, you, you hear a lot more producers on the air now than you used to even 10 years ago. But he didn't like producers on the air, but he told, you know, Pauly, your job is to put the spotlight on the talent. And the, the talent is what they call people on the radio. That's kind of an industry term, the talent. Put the spotlight on the talent. Make them look good, whether it's playing a sound clip or, you know, making sure the volume levels are good or whatever you need to do because they're the ones who are the star of the show. And I never forgot that. And I do enjoy my time on the air here when I, when I am invited to come on through the various talk shows. But hosting is a whole different thing. So thank you very much, Kevin. That's, that's very nice of you uh, to say that. But it's, it's, again, it's not a new position. <laughs> at least not yet i'm still the i'm still technically the technical producer although not today i'm the i'm the host but kevin that's very nice of you to say we got news coming up next with aaron anderson then it's our tuesday tech spotlight feature here on kitchener today on city news 570 Every Tuesday at 2.30, we take a look at a local tech startup. It's our Tuesday Tech Spotlight here on City News 570. And this week, we're talking about a company called Rideco. And I was looking around their website. It's a slightly different twist, it looks like, on the traditional ride-sharing service. And here to tell us all about it is Prem Guru Rajan, he's CEO of Ride Crew, uh, uh, sorry, Ride Co. Prem, welcome to the show. Hi, good, uh, good afternoon. I'm happy to be here. So tell us about Ride Co. Where, where did you come up with this idea? Sure, yeah. So Ride Co. offers a platform that enables cities and public transit agencies to offer something called on-demand uh, transit. And... Um, the, you know, the, the idea for RIDECO started um, nearly seven years ago. And it's a, it's actually a situation that I found uh, uh, my sister was in, and it's something that we can all probably relate to. Uh, back then, my, my younger sister had just graduated from university. She was taking the uh, public bus to work every day, and she just struggled to use the bus. She, um, it involved a lot of walking mm-hmm. to get to her first bus stop. Uh, and then a transfer point. She waited at the transfer point for 15 to 20 minutes, took the transfer, got off, and then walked another um, 10 minutes to her work. And uh, the whole journey was over an hour each way with a lot of walking and waiting. Uh, and that same journey by car would have been 20 minutes. So, you know, when I first heard about this and my sister was um, complaining about this, I thought to myself, well, why is public transit so rigid and broken? Why isn't it more dynamic and adaptive? Uh, and um, and and in a way, hopefully, it can be um, more demand responsive. Uh, so that's where the idea came about. Uh, and the gist of it is, um, we have a software platform that enables an agency um, to run buses on a dynamic route. Mm-hmm. They no longer have a fixed route, right? Using an app, you can book a ride. The app will tell you which bus stop to go to, and uh, when you'll be picked up, and you can track your vehicle on your app. And the bus will come and pick you up. You get on the vehicle. You're sharing a ride with other people, but the bus's route is dynamic, and it goes and picks up other people. It's a dynamic route created for the people that have booked their rides, uh, and it drops you off at or close to your destination. So it's, it's in a way, it's a dynamic bus 
and it's the future. So what kind of vehicles are we talking about here? Are we talking like full-size city buses or minivans or like, like what kind of vehicles are they? Uh, they're larger format vehicles and um, our clients, the, the agencies uh, use our platform with uh, vans, with shuttles or, or even full-size buses. So you actually see uh, all those uh, all those scenarios. So based on how you described it, it kind of sounds like it's it's a combination between, you know, a cab, which will literally pick you up at your house and like a traditional bus stop. Uh, so, th- so you're saying like, like, like these stops, once this, this route is created, would be, could be anyway closer to your house than a traditional bus stop. Exactly. Yeah, it could, it's a closer stop. If you don't have a traditional bus stop, it could be a, uh, a vetted, safe street corner or a plaza that you can walk to safely to get picked up. Uh, and yes, it's closer, so it's less walking. And also, it uh, reduces transfers, so it can take you to your destination. Sometimes the destination is a, is a transit hub, right? It could be an LRT station. It could be a, a GO train station, perhaps, or a major bus terminal. Other times, it's, you're still moving within the community. It takes you um, to a bus stop or a street corner close to your destination. But you're right. It's less walking, less transfers, fewer transfers, and, and less time in transit. So how have people been responding to this? Uh, because you've been around, I think, what, for three or four years. Is this, is, would you describe this as a, as a hit? People are really liking it? Liking it? Yeah, it's a huge hit. Uh, typically, wherever we launch, um, the local community responds very well to it. Um, you know, in some communities, it's, uh, it's, it's like night and day. Uh, as an example, uh, we recently launched, uh, we helped the city of Coburg, Ontario, a small community uh, um, right by the lake. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually helped them launch on-demand transit all through the city, all through the community, and um, and and the residents loved it. There were a lot of communities that uh, did not have easy access to a bus, and now with on-demand transit, it comes right around to the you know close to their neighborhood or at their neighborhood, uh, and so it opens up mobility for big segments of the city that were previously struggling to access transit. And it's not just Coburg; we we repeated that success story in different communities. Uh, we're doing it now in Guelph, um, and. Uh, and um, and you know various communities around uh, in Alberta, um, you know, we're doing it in several communities in, in Calgary, um, in small communities around Calgary, uh, like Cochrane, Leduc. Um, so yeah, so we're delivering huge impact to the uh, the communities where we're operating. Does this have the possibility? You think maybe of maybe at least in those smaller communities that might have a very limited transit system to maybe even replace the transit system that's there at least or at least be more effective uh yeah so for the very small communities uh you're right so if you look at a a small community like coburg or cochran where the population is perhaps fifty thousand or less than fifty thousand they don't have uh dense downtown or arterial corridors uh then in cases like that yes we pretty we pretty much cover the whole city with on-demand transit they're they're Maybe it's not a fixed route um, anywhere. Uh, but in bigger cities, um, you know, you start going to a place like Toronto or Waterloo, like where uh, what you typically see is a mix of the two. Um, so San Antonio is a great example. We've had a massive success story. A uh, city of San Antonio is one of the largest cities in, in North America. Mm-hmm. And they continue to have fixed routes um, in those arterial corridors where there's a lot of people, a lot of businesses, a lot of retail. And then a lot of the suburban communities where you have, uh, you know, um, homes and you have smaller businesses or offices, uh, that's where they deploy on-demand transit. 
So in, in the bigger cities, it actually works hand-in-hand with the fixed route. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, some cases actually complement it because it makes fixed route more accessible to people by solving the first last mile access gap. So I'm a, are you operating in Waterloo Region? I would assume so. Uh, we're not. Uh, no, we're not yet operating in the Waterloo Region. Okay. I know the Waterloo Region is looking at on-demand transit. We're not operating here right now. Uh, but we are operating in, uh, I would say, about 15 uh, cities across Canada. We are the largest largest provider of on-demand transit systems in Canada. Okay. And, and growing uh, quite fast. So are there employment opportunities for those who want to drive? Because if someone needs to drive these routes, right? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's not like ride-hailing or taxis in that sense where people bring their own vehicle. Um, typically, the vehicles are uh, owned by the city, right? Mm-hmm. They're usually city-owned shuttles or vans or, or buses, or it could be a private fleet operator. Uh, sometimes you know, cities will actually contract with the private sector fleet operator to run shuttles, uh, like they do, for example, in Waterloo with their paratransit system. And uh, so, yes, there's opportunities um, in the sense that we're providing transit in more areas and areas that are uh, underserved by transit, and that creates opportunities for, for drivers to be a part of the transit system. Um, so in that sense, yes. Uh, and, and we're also creating opportunities in general because by plugging people into the general fabric, fabric of society, we're encouraging more mobility, encouraging more retail. Um, so the, the bigger picture views, we're encouraging economic activity and uh, movement within the community and, and driving longer-term economic development. And where can people find out more information about RideCo? Uh, they can go to our website, rideco.com, R-I-D-E-C-O.com. Uh, and the great thing is, um, you know, we're a part of the tech community here in Waterloo, so we're hiring for lots of engineers, uh, lots of uh, technical people, analysts, project managers. Um, yeah, so if, uh, folks are interested in learning about our mission, uh, maybe joining us in, in delivering this uh, type of innovation to communities uh, around the world, we'd love to have you uh, on our team. All right, great. Thanks very much, Prem. Thank you, Polly. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Uh, Prem Guru Rajan, he is CEO of RideCo. And it sounds like a very interesting scenario. Now, I, I, I didn't ask, I remember this maybe a couple of years ago, Mike Farwell had somebody on his show, and may, maybe it was RideCo. I'd have to go back and, and check, but there there was kind of a private transit experiment that was being tried in Belleville, Ontario, in uh, in eastern Ontario. And I didn't see whether or not that was successful because we talked about them at the beginning. But, you know, this is an interesting idea. It's, it's, it's kind of halfway between, you know, a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft and a city bus. So they, you know, people who are interested in going places, they kind of create a route based on where people want to go that day. So the route could change every day because depends on whether or not people are going from one part of the city to another. Sounds like a really interesting idea. And, uh, of course, we wish them all the success. Uh, RideCo, uh, you know, based, based right here in Waterloo Region, very, very cool. We'll be back to wrap things up on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Always love hearing from you. 
here on Kitchener today on City News 570. We have a few minutes. If you have anything you want to chat about, get it off your chest and on the radio. We have about 10 minutes here till the end of the show. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570, hands-free. It's been a, it's been a kind of a heavy show. I was kind of a little bit nervous heading into the show today, and as the show has progressed, I'm feeling a lot more comfortable. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so we started off, well, at, at 12.30. Uh, we talked to Andrea... Gunrash. She was vice president of public engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. Of course, today is International Women's Day. And uh, a national poll by the Canadian Women's Foundation found that 23% of Canadians feel intimate partner violence is none of my business, even if it doesn't directly involve me. And so th- that was an interesting quote. Now, I asked for phone calls and we get them. Doug, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, hi, I heard something interesting on the news about um, uh, President Biden has cut off Putin's water and was sell it, well, uh, selling oil and gas to the United States. So the, the United States is going to put a boycott on, even though that's going to cost Americans more money. I wonder if Biden would like to import oil and gas from uh, from Canada to replace what he's already been getting from Russia. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, Doug. Yeah, I, I did hear something about that. I don't know the full extent of the story, but th- I think this is all part of the the sanctions that we've seen on Russia for invading Ukraine. And the unfortunate part of a lot of the sanctions that we've seen I've mentioned a few times, uh, you know, since I've been hosting here, you know, the you know, on and off the last couple of weeks, is you know, I think these sanctions hurt. Unfortunately, I the the people of Russia more than Vladimir Putin or the government. I was reading a story on the weekend. Netflix has announced that it's at least temporarily suspending service. In Russia, is Vladimir Putin really going to care that his his Netflix subscription no longer is operational? Now, maybe people in Russia have more things to worry about right now. But it, it, I get it; they're trying to send a message. But a lot a lot of sanctions, I think, unfortunately, will be disproportionately hurting the actual citizens of, citizens of Russia and not the government. Vladimir Putin is sitting on a whole pile of gold right now, is my understanding, a ton of gold that he's hoping to use to finance uh, this invasion. Although, you know, you're going to have to find somebody to buy the gold. I don't know how many people are willing to do that at the moment. Sean, what's on your mind? Well, I was listening to that gentleman talking about that dial-a-ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to quote the late, great Yogi Berra, it's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> when I was in high school, yeah. back, we're talking late, we're talking 1970s before the glaciers retreated sort of thing. Mm-hmm. We had a thing called dial-a-bus from Cambridge Transit before it was amalgamated. Oh, okay. It, it was like a miniature bus, and you could dial up Cambridge Transit. And you would go to the nearest little 
collection area, usually quite close to your house, and then it would do a little trip through the neighborhood and then drop you off at your location. It would pick up other people on the way. But the route would vary and change according to the people that called into Cambridge Transit. I was, it was, I was most disappointed when they stopped doing it, so I don't know if it was like a profitable model or not. Yeah. How, how long did that last, Sean? Do you know? I was in high school, so I'd have to say from the late 1970s to the early 80s, I'm guessing. Okay, and that was even after they amalgamated with uh, Kitchener no, no, and Waterloo? No, this was way before that. Okay. Yeah, so so maybe somebody else who lives in Cambridge might recall the dial-a-bus. The dial-a-bus, all right, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that. I mean, you're older than I am, Sean, but I wonder if maybe that system might have ceased when Cambridge amalgamated amalgamated. Uh, no, because he had Galt, Hespler, and Preston. Right. I get, I get mixed up between, that's right, Cambridge Amalgamated. You know what? I'm just going to stop talking because I'm, getting, I'm, getting, I'm making a fool of myself. <laughs> I'm getting the two amalgamations. Of course, Waterloo Region has not amalgamated yet. There's some people who are calling for it. Tom, go ahead. Once again, get the job because you're a real natural. Oh, thanks, Tom. The only thing is... Let me ask you, when a, a guest comes, mm-hmm. do they dictate what you can ask them or you can ask them anything? I can ask them anything. Sometimes guests will, if they're a little bit nervous or whatever, will ask for a handful of questions ahead of time just so they're kind of prepared, kind of where the nature of the conversation is going to go. But uh, okay. I, can, I can ask them really ahead of time or I can ask them really anything I want most of the time. Okay, just ask him some tough questions. Like, for example, if a guy comes to you and says, wow, we should get rid of China, we shouldn't do anything, then, mm-hmm. you know, just ask him, what about Canadian Tire, Walmart, and this? Are we going to put him out of business? Anyway, I have a solution for <laughs> Ukraine. Yeah. There's only two options. Uh, get rid of the president of Ukraine do a coup and make a deal with Russia. Like Russia, all they want is those two areas to be recognized as independent. Or NATO comes up and says, we're not going to take the Ukraine into NATO. So those are the only options. I mean, I don't know what they promised this guy, but they left him hanging. The the Ukrainian president? Yeah, they left him hanging. Uh, They won't take him into European Union because the government is corrupt. And why the guy listened to these people, I don't know. Because, I I mean, the guy's a comedian. He must have been paid off. Okay, Tom. If my country was being uh, invaded, I I, I would not be that eager to make a deal with the people who are invading me. And quite frankly... Every day that I wake up and I see that the uh, Ukrainian president is still alive, that's a good day because I'm not sure, depending on how far this invasion goes, I'm not sure if he makes it out of this alive, unfortunately. Shanaz, go ahead. Hey, I was just calling about the dial of us. So yeah. We, I moved for, we moved from uh, Toronto to Cambridge, which was, I think, newly amalgamated no one knew what the heck when i said i'm moving to cambridge mm-hmm. nobody knew what that was and i was in senior public and yeah i've ridden on the dial of us yeah so it was exactly the way the other person said so you basically um just phoned them up and they came basically to your door mm-hmm. and 
pick up other people on the way and um, then drop you off. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Did, did you know why it, it, it ceased to exist? No, no idea. I was, yeah, I was just a kid then, so it was just like, yeah. Ah. No, it just disappeared, right? So. Yeah. It's, I'm going to have to look that up. You know, Google is uh, you know, a fascinating machine. Look up this dial-a-bus that Cambridge Transit used to do. That is an interesting idea. And uh, an idea, as we have discovered now, maybe have been before its time, of course, with our, our Tuesday Tech Spotlight. We just talked to uh, Prem Google Rajan, uh, CEO of Rideco, who is uh, trying to bring that concept back. And they've been doing it for, what, three or four years now. This, this little uh, transit system, they'll, they'll create these, these bus routes Random bus routes, they change every day depending on who wants to ride and where they want to go. Bob, go ahead. Hey, common sense. It was working. <laughs> it was making money. Everybody was happy. You talking about the dial-a-bus thing? Yeah, that was the problem. <laughs> it was working. And then freaking Galt had to stick their nose into it when it would be in Cambridge, no. of course. <laughs> yeah, and well, we can't have this, man. It's like working. Uh, no, 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 no. You flower grapes, you know, and... Uh, you know, every time we get something that works well. So, so yeah. Bob, you've lived in Cambridge for many, many, many years. I sounds like, uh, yeah, somewhere around seventy. You know, so yeah, you know, fifty years yeah. after the amalgamation, people are still. It seems that there's still kind of, you know, competition between the three different areas of town. Well, uh, Preston and Hessler got taken to the bank on that because Galt took everything right off the bat. That's right. Because when you search. All of a sudden, our little yards, that all our little equipment that we took care of it, and our sidewalks we took care of back then, they took it all down the Galt, stuck it in their yard, and then everybody said, still. All right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I guess, because when you search for, you know, on Google Maps or whatever, you know, Cambridge City Center, you get to the center of what used to be downtown Galt if I'm not mistaken. And a couple of years ago, my wife and I, I don't know why, I guess we were bored one one afternoon or something, and I decided <laughs> to to put into Google Maps, you know, you know, Hespler City Center and Preston City Center. And it, it's they, they they took me to like, you know, random intersections that couldn't clearly have been the center of town at that point. So uh, there is only one center of town now. I guess that amalgamation happened in was it the early 70s? I want to say 1971, but it's it's so interesting. You hear calls from from Bob and then our our, our you know regular caller uh, Paul from Preston as well. will sometimes refer to a, a you know as Prestonian Paul or or, or Murray is also from Preston. Whenever I screen his call, he always goes, "Hey, Paulie, it's Murray in Preston." And that amalgamation happened, I guess, 50 years ago, and there's still these. Uh, you know, people identifying with certain areas of town. Well, it's been a slice, and when they call my name, I'll be back again. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. I've been producer Polly.